This is the Identity in Me podcast. I'm your host, Stena. The featured guest for this episode is Tanisha Johnson, who is the co-founder of Black Lives Matter Seacoast. She joins me to talk about her journey as an activist and what compelled her to co-found a local chapter of BLM. Thank you for listening. continue because i was about to start singing in a second so so when you feel like hope is gone oh actually i'm like i'm off i have to start all over okay go ahead ahead, okay yeah no no maybe maybe in the conclusion um, (laughs) of the episode i'll do it yeah and i think you could take a guess as to why i chose that particular song uh i am here with a hero a local hero uh tanisha johnson um, co-founder of BLM Seacoast, among many things. She'll talk about all the things that she's doing here in the community that I'm grateful for and that you all are about to learn about. Tanisha, what's good? How are you today? Hey, hey, hey. Thanks for having me here. I'm honored. So honored to have you here. And what are you, what are you up to? How's your weekend? So it's good. My weekend has been quiet, thank goodness. Aaron's getting ready for school to start. Ship these kids out of this house. I know you're excited about that too. So mm-hmm, mm-hmm, <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. that is what I'm doing. Instacart all weekend, all shopping. <laughs> and what year are the kids going into? My son is going into fifth grade and my daughter is going into 11th grade. And oh. she just got her license. So Exeter, watch out. I'm just saying, watch the roads. All right, I'm welcome. Get in the car. What color is the car? What color is the car? It's that brown color Kia Sportage. <laughs> just watch out. She'll be all right. She'll be all right. Okay. And where did you grow up? I don't know much about your story. I grew up in Hillside, New Jersey. Um, so I grew up there, um, nice suburbia area, middle class. Um, older black Southern family, um, adopted. So, you know, I lived the the strict life, couldn't go anywhere, couldn't talk to anybody, all of that. Um, private Catholic high school. So private school all my life, went to Seton Hall University, um, left there my third year. Hold on, go Pirates, go Pirates. Oh, you left there though. Oh, sorry. I left in my third year, um, because life. And so I ended up, Years later, finishing my bachelor's and my master's through Walden University online while I had my two children. So I was a mom. I was full time working and getting my education. So life came back to me and I got back on the straight and narrow and went from New Jersey to Pennsylvania. And now I'm here in New Hampshire. All right. And how long have you been in New Hampshire for? Six years. 
Oh, same as me. Yes. Mm -hmm. I thought you were more of a veteran in the game. No, no. I am six years in. Mm -hmm. All right. Okay. And what brought you to New Hampshire? My ex-husband wanted to be here with his family. So silly me. (laughs) (laughs) Came here and you're like, what is going on? Yeah. And it's funny because you're like, you know, I know the state is white and you're like, I can deal with it. It can't be that bad. You know, like going, going to Catholic school all my life, I was always one of. So it wasn't like I was around black folks my entire life. So I was like, this can't be anything different. Hmm. Was I wrong? Yeah. Was yeah. I wrong? Yeah. So, mm. I never had the fishbowl experience. Oh, yes. Yeah. Like walking around and you look up and people grilling you. My mom came out here to visit uh, not too long ago and we we're at the playground and she looks at me. She lives in Boston mm-hmm. and she looks at me at one point and says, how do you deal with this? I'm like, what are you talking about? Being around all these white people? I mean, that's that's normal. Like I went to school with a lot of white people. She's like, no, the staring, how do you deal with it? And I said, I just ignore it at this point, because if I don't, I'm going to approach somebody and it's not going to be good. You're nodding. You you have your own feelings about that? You know, I can tell I have both sides of the story of this. So my family is all down South now. I have no one back in New Jersey. I have like my, my friend family in Pennsylvania, but the rest of my family, blood family is down South. And so I was just in Virginia a few months ago because my my dad was sick. He had had a heart attack. So I was down there. And so I had the reverse thing, right? So we have the Mm. whole, oh my gosh, I'm amongst my people. And you're like, yes, like Mm -hmm. this is amazing. And then I'm like, wait, where where are the white folks? (laughs) You get like this uncomfortable feeling of like, did I lose some of my blackness Mm. by being around all the whiteness? Mm. Because there was moments where I'm like, I can't remember how to act. Mm, <laughs> and remember mm. how to take that off. You know how we act in the white spaces. Yeah, yeah. And it's so ingrained now. And as much as we try our hardest to say, no, I'm going to be authentic. I'm going to be who I am. Who I am has now evolved into this new character that has this whole whiteness in it. That whole, the way we act to fit in and to not bring any type of thing to ourselves. Yeah, so yeah. as I'm in this more black space now, I'm over here like, Ooh, let me sit differently. Let me. So it's like yeah, that. I yeah. had to remember the blackness inside of me. So then after I went through all that, got comfortable a bit again and around my people, I came back to New Hampshire and had the same feelings of you. Like, ah, oh, I'm back to being stared at. I'm yeah. back to being, you know, looked at like they've never seen black people before. Yeah. And it amazes me because the BIPOC population in New Hampshire isn't increasing drastically, especially around the seacoast and Manchester, Nashua area. And so it boggles my mind that I still walk down the street and people turn their head all the way around to be like, who's that? You know what I mean? It's like, and my face is a pretty known face. Come on, people. We still looking at the funny story. I was at Hannaford one day and someone was staring at me. And I'm at the point now where I'm like, I'm done with this. So I'm like, hey, what's up? I see you looking at me, something on my face, you know? And they were like, no, are you Tanisha? And I was like, oh, yes, I am. And they were like, I was looking at you because I thought you looked familiar. And I was like, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, and see, that's, that's the difficulty, trying to balance 
when is the stare one of, I may recognize you, you look familiar, I'm like, I'd like to have a conversation with you versus hostility, um, but it's just still very different from where I've been in the past. Uh, you talked about being from the South, mm-hmm. uh, moving here to New Hampshire. Uh, there was a natural segue happening to the question that I ask all of my guests when we start the conversation, which is, how do you identify? Yeah, I thought about this question when you sent it to me. And I think not even just in the past couple of minutes, but when you sent it to me a while ago. And I was actually listening to a couple of your podcast episodes on the whole identity piece. And I had to really sit back and think about, like, how do I identify? Mm. You know, what is this? Who is Tanisha? And then I kind of compartmentalize a lot of it, right? So I'm like, I'm a Black woman. I'm a mother. I'm a director of a program, professional, you know, master's degree, all of that, you know, running the show. I am an activist, quote unquote. I don't call myself the activist like those from back in the day in our history. I'm not there yet, but an up and coming activist. I'm a family advocate. I'm also a lesbian woman, you know, and it's like, so there's so many different identities and I'm just going, how do you put that all into Mm. one? And I say, you know what? I think I'm Tanisha the unicorn because half Mm. of those people don't even know I identify as depending on the circle I'm involved with you with. But at the end of the day, and I say this in all of my bios and everything, I am a powerful woman. And that is what I identify with the most is the power that I have inside of me that I did not recognize I had three years ago, you know? And so that's how I identify this powerful black woman that is no longer afraid of being just me. So Tanisha, uh, within the identities you listed, you uh, mentioned um, being an activist. And by the way, we're a constellation of things. When I ask people this question of how they identify, people often uh, offer their most salient identities or the identity that we are about to talk about in the particular episode. And in this case, we're breaking you down to an activist, but I know other aspects of your identity inform that activism. So please tell me about your journey as an activist. So I want to say it became more actualized in the past two years. Um, I grew up grew up in a strong Black home with two solid Black parents, and I appreciate them for everything that they did or haven't done for me. Um, and it caused various things in my life. But I've always grown up with that sense of pro-Blackness, right? With the sense of um, what white privilege is, how others are received, how I'm received. I grew up with knowing that I've always had to be better and do better. It was drilled inside of me. And so because of that, I've always had a sense of I need to stand up for not just myself, but for those around me that are Black and that are female. And so I went through that through life. And I always associated more with Malcolm X. So every, you have the Malcolm Xers, you have the Martin Luther Kings, mm, right? Mm, <laughs> mm. So you have the people in the middle. I was always, I am the Malcolm Xer. You know, I love Martin Luther King, believe in everything he stood for, but my way was the Malcolm X way. Um, and so I've always been on that level and I raised my children the same way, right? And so then when I moved here to New Hampshire, my life took a different turn. Because in Pennsylvania, I was, you know, around the familiar. I was around more ethnicities, more cultures, more all of that. 
it wasn't just whiteness. And so I was able to be more of the female activist and work with children and work with girls and Girl Scouts and do all of that stuff and just work for youth and families and mental health. When I got here, it turned into not just female activism, but now it's Black women activism. Mm -hmm. Now it's Black people activism because that is what's here. That is what's the priority. That is what's most needed right now where I'm at in my life. Wow, that was a loaded answer. No, there's a lot there. And I have a couple of follow-up questions that I didn't want to lose. So I'm going to ask both of them and um, you can answer them in in pieces. So first, can you define Malcolm X style activism? I have a sense of what you mean, but I'd love to hear from you about that. Um, I'm also curious to know if that was implanted in you, if you're if you were around other adults who were activists of that ilk. I lied. I have three questions. And so (laughs) the third question. Yeah, yeah. I, I'll see if I could remember too. The okay. third question that comes up for me is this matter of the space informing the activism. So mm. when before you got here, you were one type of activist addressing a particular issue, and then you came here and then got into issues that were more um, centered around race. Mm-hmm. Okay, so going back to that first question, define Malcolm X activism, please. So in the simplest way possible, you think about Malcolm X was in your face. He was by any means possible. He was, we cannot help others until we help ourselves. He addressed the issues that were core to the Black race. He was not sugarcoating anything. He was not not going to say anything for fear of being arrested, for fear of violence, for fear of anything within his own internal religious community. He said, I'm going to address what's happening in this world and what our people need, regardless of your thoughts, regardless of trying to collaborate, (laughs) regardless of trying to get everybody at the table. He said, no, 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 us Black people, we need to get ourselves together and demand our power, demand Mm -hmm. our respect. Whereas Martin Luther King was saying the same things, but he did it in a way of, I'm going to sugarcoat it so that white folks can understand and so that they can also work with us because we may need the white people on our side to get us where we're going, which he's not wrong. He was not wrong in that time period. He was about all of us coming together, the unity, almost the, I don't want to say kumbaya of it, but the unity of it. And there's a difference in they had the same outcome, the same end game. But the journey to get there was totally different. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, um, I do know what you mean. So in your own activism, you're not really concerned about appealing to white folks and talking about common humanity? Not really. Like I've evolved from like, yes, I think because I've been in white spaces so much and I've been able to, what, what is the word we use? Code switch a lot for myself and I realized how damaging it is for myself to sco- to code switch all the time because I lost myself, right? As much as we go into these spaces and we change our voices, we change our language, we, you know, do what we need to do, we dress differently, you know, the European hair, you know, it's like I lost a sense of myself. But also I realized if I'm really going to stand up for my people, stand up for my children, all of that, I need to say it how it really is. We need to stop sugarcoating things because these white folks not listening to us. Yeah, 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 <laughs> They're yeah, not yeah, changing yeah. 
until we're actually saying what we need to say. Okay, so it wasn't like you were modeling your activism after somebody that you grew up around. It was more uh, in response to the times that you were living in. Okay. Right, right, yeah. And I'll say, you know, my parents, my family, they were probably in the middle ground, right? They were like, we're going to stand up for our children. We're not going to go too far in the mix, but we're going to stand up for what's right in the circle. Like, I'm not, we're not going to go and, you know, be on TV. We're not going to go to the next level, but I'm going to take up for what's mine. And I think for me, that changed for me when I came to New Hampshire and the first time my daughter got called the N-word, mm. you know, and my daughter mm. heard other children being called the N-word or being attacked or bullied. Or the first time I was at work one day and a white male asked for the for the boss. And I said, that would be me. How can I help you? And they said, no, 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 no. I want the boss. And I said, that would be me. I'm the director here. How can I help you? And they said, well, we don't, I wasn't looking for your help. Oh, Oh, wow. Wow. And so when I realized that these things were really still happening in the world, because sometimes we don't believe it, right? We're like, we hear about it, things like that. And we're just like, there's no way stuff like that is really happening. And it is. And it's just that's when my turning point changed of I don't think I can no longer sugarcoat. Do I want allies? Absolutely. But I want interrupters. I want co-conspirators. I want those who are going to fight the fight alongside me or behind me, not speaking for me. And so I need all of that right now. And so my vision, my activism changed to say I am no longer going to sugarcoat it so that you can understand because I'm still being oppressed. I'm still being harmed. I'm still a part of a system that is built for my failure and my children's failure. And so we can't do this any longer. By the way, you answered all of the questions successfully. And so in this environment, you are a co-founder of BLM Seacoast. When and why did BLM Seacoast come about? So we started, I want to say almost three years ago, um, and it started because it was three of us originally, um, so I can only tell my side of the story. And so I used to travel to Manchester for BLM events right when the world started like erupting into everything. Probably was right when the start of COVID and everyone was sitting in front of the TV, seeing everything happen. Um, you know, COVID brought everything out of the closet, down from racism to everything else, family dynamics, all of that. And so when everything started happening more and more and more and protests were coming up, rallies were coming up, events were coming up, I found myself driving to Manchester, driving to Nashua, driving to Massachusetts. And I'm going, why are we not having the same type of things here? You know, the Seacoast mm. does have a Black BIPOC population. Why are we not having events here? And so I reached out to BLM Mansion Nashua and I said, how did you guys start this? Like, I'm on the, I'm on the internet just Googling <laughs> Black Lives yeah, Matter. Yeah, and, yeah. you know, what is this supposed to, is this a franchise? Is this, you know, what is this? And talked with them. They gave me some tips and said, oh, and by the way, Someone else was looking into doing this. So you guys may want to talk to each other. And that was Macy White. And so her and I got together and started chatting about different things. And she was putting putting together the first protest in Portsmouth. What was that? Three, 
three-ish, four-ish years ago. Yeah. And um, she said to me, oh, there's another person that also wants to get involved and his name is Clifton. And we ended up meeting one day on Zoom, um, the three of us, and we're like, we're going to do this. And at first it started off as maybe we're just going to hold some protests, you know, put some social media out there of stop this and stop that and, you know, all of this. And we, if I, we were just talking about this a couple of days ago. If you would have said to us three years ago that that little Zoom conversation of putting mm. together a couple of rallies would turn into this 501c3 nonprofit organization doing the things that we're doing, I'd have been like, nope, you lying. <laughs> Take that somewhere else. But this is where we are. And so the three of us, which turned into the two of us, Macy ended up um, switching colleges and doing some life things. Um, but then and I turned it into what it is now. And this is how we got here. And you talk about events from three years ago. Mm-hmm. What events are you referring to from three years ago? Illuminate uh, us. <laughs> As if you don't know. Okay. So I'm talking about the George Floyd. I'm talking about, let's even go back further than three years ago. Let's talk about Trayvon Martin. Let's talk about Ahmaud Aubrey. Let's talk about Breonna Taylor. Like we're talking about all those things that were live and in living color three to four years ago that were in our faces that we all were glued to the TV for going, I can't believe this is happening. I can't believe Black people are getting murdered and by white folks and nothing is happening about it. I'm talking about all of the protests and riots, and I did my quote marks for I can't see, that were happening across the nation. I'm talking about the breakdown of the police and Black people war that was happening on the streets. And I say now, if I had to name it, we're probably in what the second civil war mm. at the start of it. You know, yeah, if yeah. we don't get better, this is literally turning into that. You know, yeah. I'm thinking about the research that you did regarding BLM to eventually start a chapter here in um, in the Seacoast area. the The question is, what did you learn about Black Lives Matter in your research? The, and the reason I'm asking, I'm, I'm curious about what you learned because of what over the years to me has been this gross mischaracterization of what the organization is about. And my own anger and frustration comes up. It's just like, you know, a black person dies at the hands of a police officer and, and a black person who's unarmed at that. And instead of just everybody being upset at this really gross, um, carriage or miscarriage of justice, it's like, oh, well, you know, if if he didn't flinch, you know, he wouldn't have gotten shot. And mm-hmm. oh, here are these bad Black Lives Matter people who have come along. They're, they're communists, they're terrorists, they're all these mm-hmm. different things. And it's like, oh my God, it's that hard for you to just say this right. awful thing happened. I care. And our police officers should just be better about how they do their work. Mm-hmm. So What did you learn about BLM in your uh, research of the organization? Let me say, I learned exactly what you just said. Um, People took from what was a statement of Black Lives Matter to turn into this horrible, oh my God, I can't believe they're saying this. What about us? What about everyone? Everyone matters. And I'm going, we didn't say everyone didn't matter. We just said right now, Black people are dying. Black people are the priority right now. Our Black men, our Black women, our Black children are priority right now. Down from maternal health to police. You know what I mean? Like we are priority at the moment. 
And I learned that these three women who started this, regardless of whether you agree or not with their, the way they run their business now, that's not what I'm even going to say, but they started this based on the principle of saying, we are dying right now. We need to be a priority. Systems need to change. It started, or I should say, continued the conversation that started years ago that kind of quieted down. You know, we stopped talking about race. Race wasn't a huge thing anymore. We knew about it in the Black community. We knew racism exists. White folks know racism exists. But it wasn't the integral conversation. It wasn't a conversation of breaking down systems to change everything for everyone, right? And that's what this started. BLM was the catalyst to a new and reframed conversation about systems of oppression for people, not just Black people, but for marginalized, for communities, for the disabled, for all of that. It became the catalyst for how do we make change, lasting change, so that the next generation, the generation after that, is not having the same challenges that we're having now. And so we, BLM Seacoast is a, not an official chapter of Black Lives Matter global or national organization. We are not affiliated technically with that global organization. We are our own entity. We use the language of Black Lives Matter, but our Seacoast chapter is not affiliated with the global network. We, um, we are the boots on the ground organization. Our money that we receive through grants, donations, funding, whatever, goes right back out into the community. Uh, We have a mutual aid network where we fund, we pay for rent, summer programs, school, everything. Last year, we gave out about $75,000 of mutual aid from Massachusetts to Vermont, to Maine, to New Hampshire. Right on, right on. Yeah, and so we're doing a lot of big different things. And so what's hard for us is because BLM Global Network has so many different opinions and perspectives about it, you know, how they're running the organization, Marxist women, you know, what they're doing with their funds, buying mansions, whatever that may be, it doesn't change the principle that they were the catalyst to a conversation about changing the system, not just changing the white man's view of the Black person, but the change needed in the whole system beyond the racism, but to the white supremacist world that we're living in, that everything was built off of, that in, that impacts everyone. Again, not just Black folks, but everyone. And until we change that, nothing is changing. We're still going to be seeing cops putting knees on the backs of Black men yeah. until we start breaking down that change. So. And thank you for all your efforts. And so I'm curious to know what is coming down the pike for BLM locally, uh, programming and um, some immediate goals that you have. So um, our upcoming event is our gala on October 1st. This is our third annual gala. It's going to be in Dover this year. We, we stepped it up a little bit. Um, right. Tickets go on sale next week. Um, again, the gala goes towards our youth division and our mutual aid project. Um, so that is going to be amazing. It's a celebration of Black excellence. We have a keynote speaker. We have Adrian Mack and her band performing. We have a dance performance and we have a full four course dinner. Buffet okay. okay. Um, yes, from Greenleaf Restaurant in Milford. So it will be a straight Haitian cuisine. I am Ooh. so excited about it. 
Um, we have desserts provided by Greenleaf, also by Courtney Daniels, a Southern bakery out of, I think she's in um, Maine now. She's not in Dover anymore. So everything Black, everything provided is Black. Even our decorator is Black um, <laughs> for the event. So mm-hmm. we are truly excited about that. We also just got funded to hire a part-time outreach person. So mm-hmm. we'll be putting out um, a couple of job positions to hire um, individuals to come work for BLM Seacoast to do some outreach events as we get into election season um, and time to just really step up marketing again. And of course, we have our DEIJ training team, which includes myself, um, Kevin from, I'm not even going to butcher his last name, but yeah, he yeah. can I say it. <laughs> but, Pajaro Marinas. Yes, there yeah, you go. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, we have our DEIJ team and we stay out here in the world doing trainings and enlightening everyone to change their perspectives. So that's what we got going on. I am looking forward to that event on October 1st. I'm in there. I was there last year and enjoyed it tremendously. Um, I was in great company. Didn't have anybody staring at me. (laughs) It was cool. It was so dope. And if you're looking for a singer at that event, if you want somebody to perform hero, um, you know, as long as you couch it as a karaoke performance, right? <laughs> you know, that's the only way I get up in front of people to sing. Um, Listen, have... let me tell you, we're going to do an open mic series starting mm-hmm. in October, November, and December. It's going to be three, three events at three locations. It'll be Stratum, Dover, and Portsmouth. So, you know, if you want to get it ready. Tune in for part two of my conversation with Tanisha, where she talks about a dope new endeavor she has taken on with a local police officer. It's collaborative and contentious. I won't say more, though. You'll just have to listen to the next episode. Until then, keep reflecting. Identity.